Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman, and my guest today is John Gronbeck Tedesco. He's the author of Cuba, the United States, and Cultures of the Transnational Left, 1930 to 1975, published in 2015 by Cambridge University Press. This is an impressive book that combines political narrative of the revolutions in 1933 and 1959 in Cuba with analysis of the transnational cultural production and all of the tensions and contradictions that adhered. It's a fascinating book, and I'm really pleased to be speaking with John today. Hi, John. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let's just jump in. This is a book about human relationships and cultural artifacts between Cuba and the United States that encompasses the revolutions of 1933 and 1959. So can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be the subject and why you chose to frame it that way? Uh, Yeah, you know, like so many books that come from dissertations, I think uh, this book started in its earliest instance as a paper for a graduate student seminar that I took at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I was interested in a period of the 1930s. I was interested in in Cuban history. I was in the Department of American Studies, so I was wanting to do something to try to bridge Latin American studies and and American studies in my own work. This was at the time that the transnational turn was taking off. Uh, And so I, I wrote this paper about U.S. leftists that went to Cuba during the 1930s uh, and and sort of found um, a, a kind of catalog of material that I hadn't seen written about very much. Uh, people who would have uh, been communists, socialists, members of the what what's sort of historically called the old left, uh, who went to Cuba as part of this kind of dissident uh, cartography that also included other places in Latin America like Mexico and Nicaragua, and of course the wider uh, dissident map that uh, also included the Soviet Union and, and, and China and India. Uh, so I wanted to put Cuba on that map more pronouncedly. And at the same time, I was, of course, interested in the 1959 revolution that had been written about much more widely. Uh, certainly, there's a much larger literature on that on that period um, with respect to the left. So I kind of, um, through graduate school and then thinking of how to put a dissertation together, thought I wanted to make some sort of bridge between uh, revolutionary generations uh, on the Cuba side and and generations of of American lefts on the U.S. side. And that's how this project kind of uh, came to be. Yeah, and it includes lots of really wonderful characters, which I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, later on. Um, so you begin the introduction, and actually you begin almost every chapter with some really fantastic quotes. And there's one in the very first chapter from Edmundo Desnoes, who's a writer, a Cuban writer, who's now living in New York. And um, he says, Our America has produced Che. 
So we enter the saturated iconographic world of contemporary history. So what drew you to that quote? I found it really um, compelling. Yeah, so one of the things I try to engage with in this book uh, is the is the cultural conversation, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction. I'm really interested in, in the texts, the poetry, the photography, the journalism, theater, uh, music, uh, and, and the relationship between those texts to the larger cultural formations of modernism and postmodernism. Now, I don't put modernism and postmodernism uh, that central in my story. It remains peripheral, but it's still a part of it. And so that quote, to me, really was the essence of what became a kind of critical engagement with the Cuban Revolution, uh, certainly from the United States, from the U.S. perspective. That is, Che and other revolutionary leaders are simply... um, putting on airs or just posing as something that they're not, that they're, they're not really. Um, it becomes a kind of postmodern critique. What I've found interesting about that quote is that was coming from within Cuba uh, during the early days of the revolution that already Desnoyes and others uh, within Cuba had a sense of how the revolution was being seen from the outside, was being performed within Cuba but for outside visitors, for an outside audience. It's not, at least my endeavor is not to take away the veracity of of the revolution or what revolutionary leaders believe themselves to be doing, but it is to see the revolution and to see how U.S. Americans and other global audiences were drawn to it, and, and in some ways the revolution is performed in a particular way for these global audiences. That quote to me... Uh, shows that they're that the Cubans are cognizant of this, right? That that they're aware that 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 um, this is a kind of um, it's a spectacle, uh, a political spectacle uh, of unparalleled proportions in the Americas. Mm-hmm. I thought it was also a kind of methodological comment in the sense that, as you mentioned briefly, a lot of the attention is devoted to cultural production and the roles of the role of icons and iconography in these transnational histories and what you do. So well, as you combine the analysis of those cultural icons with these uh, sort of broader political narratives, and I'm and I'm wondering how you arrived at that as a method. If you could talk about that a little bit more, uh, you mean how to insert or how to talk about the text within these kind of political flows across across these historical periods? Yeah, because it strikes me that a lot of the work is either kind of straight political narrative or. Uh, isolated cultural critique and what you do so nicely is sort of put the two in conversation yeah well thank you very much for all this flattery (laughs) (laughs) it's so nice to have positive feedback thank you um yeah you know so i think it comes from what i studied as a graduate student i mean i was very interested in cultural studies being a student of american studies but i was also interested in foreign relations history and a lot of influential professors that i had uh, really guided me through a literature of foreign relations history. And just as American studies and other uh, fields were taking a transnational turn uh, several years ago, the the field of foreign relations history was, um, was taking culture seriously. And there was a kind of cultural turn 
in foreign relations history in, in beginning in the late 90s and early 2000s um, that I was drawn to. So I found then um, a kind of way to blend these methodologies and to, as you, I think, rightly say, kind of put the cultural text in a political framework and then also put culture to the political narratives. Um, and so that those, those kind of what, what, is, what are often seen as kind of separate methodological avenues are kind of combined, or I, I try to combine them uh, in this book, because the, the political contexts are very important. Also, the national histories are, uh, how Cuban history changes, uh, how U.S. history changes, the historical narratives that Cubans are writing about themselves, that uh, U.S. Americans are writing about themselves. Um, those histories and historiog- uh, historiographies are also important to the cultural production. So in that sense, in the sense that you say, uh, José Martí is kind of the perfect archetypical transnational subject in the sense that he was so literary and so political. Um, But maybe you can talk a little bit about why Martí and how um, you use him in your project and what what do you have to contribute to the kind of voluminous Martí studies that exist? Well, I use him by way of introduction, and I, 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 I point to him throughout the book as this kind of foundational narrative of Cuban nationalism. Uh, what comes up throughout the book is how Cuban nationalism e- evolves uh, in tandem with uh, the presence of the United States in Cuba, uh, first as a colonial presence and then a neo-colonial presence, an imperial presence. Uh, and so Marti factors factors into Cuban nationalism uh, and, through that narrative uh, throughout throughout the book. The actual figure of Marti, however, becomes kind of just an entry point for me. I think there's so much good writing on Marti. I didn't want to take take Marti on because there <laughs> there was so much literature, and he's a he's a phenomenally complex uh, figure. And I didn't I didn't want to try to add to Marti studies, um, but I do find him pivotal for thinking about uh, the beginning of modernism and transnationalism across the Americas. And Marti is interesting because so much of his life was spent outside of Cuba, uh, 15 years of it, in the United States. And he's someone who lived as a kind of modernist transnational subject who became very critical of American empire, although he did have some favorable things to say about the United States, but of course turned quite critical towards the U.S. Um, And then, you know, it becomes an interesting figure because his sense of Cuban nationalism really matures uh, outside of Cuba as a transnational uh, figure, uh, and of course he uh, famously returns to Cuba only to uh, to, to die in the uh, war war of independence against against Spain. Um, but I think his life and and is is what I've tried to argue is his life is le- less exceptional perhaps, when we look at all this other activity that I try to trace in the book uh, of people going across national borders, engaging with different languages, different communities, in places like New York City, in Buenos Aires, in Mexico City, in Havana. I'm mostly concerned with just Havana and New York City, uh, but others have written on these other cosmopolitan capitals and the transnational uh, communities that um, arise uh, during this kind of heyday of modernism. Um, so Marti, for me, then, is, is a way to get into that conversation because the figures I chart in the book 
really come on the heels of what what he was doing in the late 1800s. Yeah, um, and sort of sort of moving along through the through the century, um, I was really glad to see some work on Carlton Beals's book, The Crime of Cuba which is one of my favorite texts to think with. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just t- take a little bit of time to describe the text and also the images, the photographs by Walker Evans, um, and uh, take us through the way it fits into your arguments about this transnational relationships. Yeah. So one of the arguments I'm trying to make in the book is that American leftists of various stripes um, were, were pro-Cuban and were anti-imperialist and were very critical of uh, U.S. history uh, in, in Cuba, the history of the United States in Cuba. That said, one of the arguments I make is that even well-intentioned uh, critics, uh, good lefties from, from the 30s, for instance, like Carlton Beals, still could not distance themselves from the history of empire in Cuba so that the revolutionary gaze that they sort of use to describe Cuba, to de- engage with Cubans, uh, was connected to a kind of colonial discourse or, in the U.S. case, a kind of imperial discourse. So that although uh, Carlton Beals, who is probably one of the key uh, journalists uh, of the day that it was was quite critical of of uh, U.S. policy, not just in Cuba but in Mexico and Nicaragua. I mean, Beals went throughout these countries and and associated with with revolutionaries and wrote a lot. I mean, he's got just a, a an incredible um, uh, stack of writing under his name. Um, the crime of Cuba comes about uh, as a as a project. Uh, he goes to, to Cuba in 1932 and wants to write a book about the what is now a, a kind of open open revolutionary revolt against the dictator uh, Gerardo Machado. Walker Evans uh, goes separately, and he is a, a photographer and um, who will become associated with the New Deal. Uh, he is uh, and becomes one of the premier American photographers of the 1930s. And so the book, The Crime of Cuba, is really a, a text. Uh, it, it's an indictment by Beals against the U.S. government. And basically he says the reason Cubans are suffering under Machado is that the United States has had uh, this kind of place in Cuban history. He goes on to say it's also the history of Spanish colonialism. I mean, he goes beyond just the United States. But his key argument is that uh, you can't understand Cuban conditions without also understanding uh, U.S. empire in, in Cuba. Evans is taking takes these pictures of everyday Cuban life, and it's it's kind of characteristic Evans. Uh, you know, there's there's not uh, he, he seems to just capture objects and people in their seeming natural state. It's very hard to find. His photographic voice. What does he want us to think? It's it's you know you. I always find myself asking that question when I when I look at Evans's work, and you're not going to get an answer, which is why he's so uh, he's so impactful uh, in the world of photography. So that book is a uh, is a combination of images uh, and text, and what Beals does is he indicts you know the United States, but he also tr- kind of provides an almost ethnographic sort of uh, an ethnographic uh, adventure, really, into Cuba, where he narrates different 
scenes, and one of the scenes that I find very evocative of, of this tension that I'm trying to describe in the book is when Beals goes and witnesses uh, a dance, probably a rumba wawanko, a kind of typical Cuban dance, and there are two non-white dancers, uh, mixed-race, non-white mulatto dancers, and, and Beals uh, goes into depth, I mean, quite a bit of detail describing this scene between this this woman and this man, and the the description is laden with sexual imagery and innuendo and and metaphor, so that Beals really is in a sense eroticizing, exoticizing, othering the very Cubans uh, with whom he has allied to fight back American empire, and so he like others. Uh, from the United States fall into a kind of imperial discourse, even though it's within this left-wing framework. And so that's what I was trying to do with, with that and other voices in the book, that even through these alliances between Cubans and U.S. Americans and these different generations of, of revolutionary activity and left-wing activity, there's still the history of American empire in, in Cuba, and that well-intentioned left-wing spokespeople could not always divest themselves, uncouple their left-wing discourse from the imperial discourse. So talking about the 1933 revolution for a moment, and um, the way that writing was happening in, both inside Cuba and in the United States, and th- that 1933 revolution is often overshadowed by 1959, as you mentioned earlier, but you argue that it was really important, and I, I would agree with that. Um, so one of the things that you point out is the the outcome of some of the activity in, in 1933, which is the rewriting of history and the re-narration of everything that had come before, and especially 1898. So could you talk a little bit about how that worked and and sort of the implications of that new new narratives, new historical narratives? Yeah, and you know that was one of the, I think one of the the most rewarding parts of the research as I went from dissertation to to book. Uh, I had done a lot on 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 the left in the 1930s, Cuban politics, but when I started reading uh, how Cubans were rewriting their history in the 1930s, I got really interested in it because what it shows is that the massive break that happens in 1959 uh, is really starting to take shape earlier. I mean, there's so many ways and so many other people have kind of argued, when do you begin, you know, what happens in 1959? Is this an 1898 thing? Is it a 1933 thing? Is it the 40s? Is it really after World War II? Is it really a product of the 1950s? And for me, I found that the 30s were uh, a sensationally interesting a period for Cuban nationalism, and incidentally for the United States as well. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a fascinating decade in terms of cultural production, but also the rewriting of, of, of nationhood, of nationalism in both countries. And I think the Depression does this, you know, across the globe. Um, but in Cuba, historians are starting to become much more critical of the United States. And this is happening at the same time there is revolutionary activity against Machado, Many, most Cubans, uh, I've argued in the 30s, are not anti-American, but there is a significant constituency within the revolutionary, the broad revolutionary movement against Machado that is increasingly anti-American. 
uh, and that this is influencing uh, the writing of Cuban history. Um, so figures uh, like Herminio Portel Vila uh, and, and, and many others are writing, rewriting essentially Cuban history to put Cubans uh, in the front of that history, especially in the War of Independence. It's really a reckoning of sorts in Cuban nationalism to de-emphasize the role of the United States and to put forth uh, the Cuban side of the story and really to make the U.S. the enemy of liberation, really crying foul in these histories at the occupation uh, that happens as well as the following economic and military domination that the U.S. is able to exercise over Cuba uh, after 1902. Those histories are, are being published. Uh, they're part of the university movement. University students are engaging with these histories. And so that rewriting of history, I think, has a, 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 is an important part of the 1959 story. And it's not one that we always get. We often get the military. We get a lot of the economic story of, of, of the rise of, of, what, of the 1959 revolution. But I think the change in national consciousness that's happening earlier is something that um, we haven't always paid attention to, and I try to insert that in the book. Mm-hmm. And related to that, you turn to race in at least two of the chapters and to the conversations about race that took place through literary production and across the water. And I was really interested in the way that you used Brent Hayes Edwards' notion of the joint as a site of both connection and disconnection. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that works for you in terms of what you want to do and also in the specifics of the chapter that revolves around Nicolas Guillen and Langston Hughes and their writing and their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that um, Edwards' practice of diaspora was really influential to me. And, you know, it wasn't just influential to me in terms of thinking about diaspora history, African diaspora history, uh, but I take liberty, <laughs> maybe some would say, to, and, and use his uh, metaphor of the joint to really think about collaboration and difference uh, among these different left-wing groups. As I mentioned with, with Beals, how to be pro-Cuban yet unable to divorce oneself from their ethnogra- uh, ethnocentric uh, kind of imperial background. So that um, connection and disconnection is something that re- really attracted me to, to Edwards. How, for instance, writers activists, artists can be on the same page uh, with their political goals, with their artistic visions, uh, but at the same time, nationalisms can get in the way. Uh, The history of empire can get in the way. Uh, So Edwards, I think, was trying to add nuances to what what was often a flattened conversation about diaspora, sort of everyone of African uh, descent is unified in a common bond that is predicated on the history of slavery, marginalization, oppression, and I think that's significant. And, and there's and there's that there's a lot of good work that comes out of that. But I think Edwards was trying to say language differences are important, national differences are important. So I I borrow his framework and and try to use that really throughout the book. But as you mentioned, I, I return to it in two key chapters where, where I talk about race. I really got in, like so many others, got into the writing of, of Nicholas Guillen and Langston Hughes. 
uh, I may have been partial to Hughes because I grew up in in Lawrence, Kansas, where uh, Hughes spent uh, a portion of his childhood, um, and and so there was a part of me that saw Hughes as this kind of interesting itinerant artist, although he's uh, associated with New York City, uh, and rightfully so. He ha- he lived all over the place uh, and had an incredible, incredibly mobile. Uh, a career and, and visited many countries. And one of the key friendships, of course, is his friendship with Guillen. It's an artistic friendship. Uh, and and the, that friendship, I, as so many people have written about, is, is one that is so, it's so gratifying to do research on. And, of course, the poetry that both uh, men did um, is, is, is also just really wonderful, wonderful to read. So I really got into, got into the story, got into their lives, where they went. They became even better friends when they went uh, to Spain during the, uh, the, the Spanish Civil War. I think some of Langston Hughes's most powerful writing actually comes from that time he spent in Spain. I think he was completely unprepared for, as, as most people were, uh, what, for what he saw and witnessed uh, during those, those couple years he was there. Um, so... I wanted to talk about how Guillen and Hughes mutually influenced one another, but that too, that story has also been been written. So I kind of tried to gravitate towards how these two figures were were different, and how the the Cuban the Cuban and the U.S. American nations uh, that that made up that were connected to uh, their racial identities. Um, was important, and and as I researched Guillen, I saw that it was important for him. And while he loved Harlem, for instance, and was inspired by Harlem and Langston Hughes, and everything that uh, Harlem artists had to offer, he was perplexed by how and and saddened by how Harlem could exist in such a wealthy country. Um, and he distanced himself from that. You know, he, he, he identified with African-descended art, and he allied himself with Harlem artists. Uh, but at the same time, he was a Cuban nationalist, uh, and he, he saw himself as doing something for Cuba first uh, and something different um, from what uh, black artists were doing in the United States. And um, so for me, that was... That was something interesting. I think Hughes also, as so many other African Americans who visited Cuba at this time, he wrote about Hughes wrote about how race was different in Cuba. Although Hughes, uh, as I mentioned in the book, did confront racism in Cuba, uh, he still noted how there was a, a suppleness to uh, racial divisions. There was an accessibility for uh, for people of color to have community to have art uh, in a way that he did not f- find that in the United States. There, there was, he, Hughes said there wasn't the, the rigidity of, of Jim Crow United States in, in Cuba, although racism did exist. Uh, and there was something very gratifying about being in Cuba for Hughes. Uh, and he, like many others, uh, wrote that it was, you go to Cuba to be closer to Africa. There's a way that Cuban music Cuban art, Cuban poetry, uh, like Guillen's poetry, brought one closer to Africa because those Africanisms were more prominent, more present in Afro-Cuban art 
in Afro-Cuban religion, but also in the nation of Cuba itself. It had an elevated status. Mm-hmm. So to add to the complexity, you also make the really important point about the masculinization of black sub- subjectivities at the moment and in these texts. So I wonder um, how does that work in this particular context? How were you able to pull that out of and comment on this notion of masculinization um, in, in these in these subjectivities that they're creating? Well, so that's that's somewhere where if you you know if the publisher said you have unlimited pages, go go for it. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I'm I'm critical of uh, of myself about is the is is the the, the gender issue. I mean, I, I try to get at it and I try to to talk about women uh, in the revolution, women on the left, um, and I do try to talk about masculinization, about how some of these, many of these texts are, are center, are written by men, but they also center on a particular utopian ideal in which men um, are the premier uh, revolutionaries. They are the ideal revolutionary subjects. Um, so I try to get at that, but it's certainly um, not as exhaustive as it, as it could be. Um, I think that a lot needs to be done in that area, and um, you know, Michelle Chase's new book is is a wonderful uh, addition to that in terms of trying to bring out Cuban women in the story of in the history of, of the 1959 revolution. My, I was trying to make a connection between the imperial discourse that favors masculinity and the left wing discourse that does the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, the revolutionary discourse is, is anti-American. It says, here's what's wrong with uh, the capitalist United States, and the list is long. I mean, this is a, you know, a familiar story. However, what's interesting is that in debunking or in attempting to debunk uh, empire, the Cuban revolutionary narratives adheres to the same masculine ideal uh, that the imperial one does, and it really becomes a kind of war among masculine discourses, right? Between masculine discourses between Cuba and the United States, I try to call attention to that, mm-hmm. um, and and use the work of of uh, people like um, uh, Josie uh, Saldana and her work on on looking at the masculinization of revolution. You know, and and the the masculinization of of third world politics, right? You know, so, so in some ways, it becomes a kind of self fulfilling prophecy in the way that you write about masculinization, and most people who are engaged in that conversation are in fact men, and so you have to right, address exactly. them, right? Um, and you I do. Want, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say you do, and um, and and and. And try to also find the voices that are omitted, which I try to do by mm-hmm. inserting women. I, I devote the final chapter to women in the 1930s and women in the 1960s. Uh, and I also try to talk about sexuality in connection to, to gender, something that Jafari Allen has done quite well with respect to uh, sexuality in, in Cuba, uh, particularly Afro-Cubans and, and sexuality. Um, because there is this sort of heteronormative masculine ideal that is being proffered on both sides. And what's ironic is that both sides can agree on this, although it's never made an issue, right, in the 60s. The, the, the making it uh, an issue will come, will come 
later, although, as I write, feminists do make it an issue. Feminists are, it's a difficult thing to be a feminist, a third world feminist in the 60s, to idealize socialist Cuba and then to go to Cuba and feel that, oh, you know, uh, because you're a woman, you're you get the short thrift just like you do in the United States. That's a complicated thing for feminists to to grapple with in the '60s, right? And I want to talk about that a little bit more, in the sense that that argument actually about feminists turns into a larger argument that you use to to really um, unify the whole book, which is this notion of disillusionment. But um, but before I get to that, I want to just talk about the two texts in the chapter on revolution, because I found them really fascinating. The first was a play by Terence McNally called Cuba C. Mm-hmm. And I had not heard of this, but I, now I really want to assign it <laughs> to my <laughs> students. Um, and uh, the second is this song, Guantanamera, and the really complicated performance history that that song has and the, the wonderful way that you kind of tease that out and, and talk about the many layers um, that are involved in the in the recording of it and in the, the rights to it and all of that kind of stuff. So maybe you can just talk about how you chose those two texts, because I would imagine that there are lots to choose from and um, just sort of explain to us a little bit more what, the, what, what those are all about and what they're doing in your chapter. Yeah, well, so Cuba C., the play, like you, I had never heard of that. And I saw a reference to it in something when I was doing research, and I thought, well, what is this? And then I read it. It's, it's, a, it's a short play. You should, t- you should totally assign this, and you should actually make your students act it. I mean, yeah, this that, is, that's this what is I was thinking. begging for a, perform- a, cl- yeah. a performance in a classroom. It's short. It'll be fun. Yeah, it's a, it's a one-act play in which the character, the main character, is named Cuba, and she's a, a female revolutionary who's kind of bunkered herself down in the middle of Central Park. The other main character in the play is is simply called the reporter, and he's a guy who's come from a major New York newspaper to interview this person, Cuba, who's in Central Park. Uh, and what McNally's doing is it's a kind of banter between these two characters. And, of course, Cuba, maybe unsurprisingly, is, you know, she, she's, a, she's a Cuban soldier, but she, of course, represents the, the nation of Cuba. And the reporter uh, we take to represent av- the average American. And so their kind of banter back and forth is, is meant to, I think McNally is trying to do, is, is try to show the absurdity of... of the political hostility between Cuba and the United States, because what comes out is the character Cuba and the character of the reporter uh, just have this kind of absurd dialogue. Um, At the same time, though, um, there is this kind of, uh, it's it's a sort of scene within a a scene, that is, Cuba is, is the object of passersby who are, who are taking pictures of her. And so I think going back to your original question about uh, uh, postmodernism, McNally is kind of showing Cuba to be a spectacle. And um, it's an interesting thing because you have the protagonist is a female, which breaks some of the gender things that we were talking about earlier, right? It's not a masculine, she's not, it's not a masculine figure that represents revolution, it's a female. But at the same time, she's taunted uh, she is photographed, she's made fun of, uh, and she a- appears in the play uh, silly herself. What is she trying to accomplish in Central Park? Why is she clinging to these, these revolutionary uh, uh, 
you know, reductive revolutionary absolutisms that have no, no sort of bearing in New York. But at the same time, the reporter comes off as ethnocentric, as um, someone who is misguided, someone who's just um, is oblivious, right, to to the political situation in, in Cuba. So that play was really interesting for me because it's um, it's a criticism, but at the same time, uh, it too falls into this kind of pattern that I try to show in the book that McNally, perhaps unknowingly or unintentionally, uh, is has the same kind of revolutionary gaze, this gaze that other writers of Cuba, American writers of Cuba, uh, or I should say maybe... Um, American portrayers of, of, of Cuba uh, fall into. He's not unlike Beals. He's doing something completely different from Beals, but there's a way in which the play uh, has a gaze, has a kind of way of looking at, at, at Cuba that is conforms to this longer history um, that I try to chart uh, in the book. Um, the other text that you mentioned is Guantanamera, which is uh, a song I listened to way too much <laughs> writing the dissertation of <laughs> the book. Many different, many, many versions. Um, and But then, you know, once you listen to something a hundred times, it kind of becomes a part of you. I found the story of Guantanamera really interesting because I didn't know its history. Um, I, you know, knew it was a Cuban folk song, but I had no idea that really the popularization of it came through the recordings by first the Sandpipers in the United States uh, and then Pete Seeger. Um, and that that story of how Guantanamera becomes sort of Guantanamera on the global stage is itself a kind of uh, postmodern story, but it's also one that um, depends on globalization. And so, you know, tracing that and, and, and seeing how Seeger finds himself in this really difficult position, he's a guy, you know, on the left who is a champion of the, of the revolution in Cuba. He goes to Cuba in 1971. Uh, he's held in high esteem. But, of course, the, the problem is, is that he's recorded this song and he's made it incredibly famous and he's earning royalties uh, from it. And those that money, you know, Cubans say, well, that's our song. Mm. And you took it. <laughs> uh, and the embargo, the nature of the embargo was such that Seeger really, you, you, you couldn't put, put together a contract in which anyone in Cuba would see money from the sale of that song or that album. Um, so he, he, it becomes an uncomfortable position. Uh, and again, the left... Seeger, as a member of the left, is sort of um, cannot s- divorce himself from this longer history of empire in Cuba, uh, and that empire also has uh, um, disproportionate ability to control cultural production, uh, including world music, and to determine uh, you know who's paid for what. Uh, and so I found that very interesting. I also wanted to branch out into other cultural texts, being an American studies. Uh, guy, I was interested in trying my hand at writing about theater, writing about music, writing about photography. It's one of the reasons I, I go into these different areas is to try my hand at it. Um, so that's, and then of course with Guantanamera, it's interesting because the song is recorded by so many different people. And so that chapter, I continue with the song and uh, do a treatment of Wyclef 
uh, Jean's version of Guantanamera, a kind of hip-hop version of it, and, and um, locate the song in New York City and, and kind of show New York City to be this pan-Caribbean uh, place and a place that has connections to the Cuban diaspora, but of course the Haitian diaspora, which is uh, what Jean is a part of, and how then this song really kind of goes a revolution in and of itself. If it comes from a 19th century agrarian folk background combining Spanish music uh, with, some would say, Afro-Cuban music, it's, it's, a, um, it's a guajira, but it's also got rumba qualities to it, especially when it's first recorded in the 1920s. It becomes a folk song through the Sandpipers and Pete Seeger, and by the time Jean picks it up uh, in the late 1990s, it now is again within the cultural domain of African-descended people, of the African diaspora, becoming appropriated in a hip-hop uh, remake of the song. So I found that journey of the song very interesting, and not unlike the journeys of some of the people I'm, I'm charting in the book, not unlike the journeys of a Jose Marti. I don't make that connection too explicitly in, in the book, although the words of the song in part do come from Jose Marti. But that it ends up in New York City, the setting of it, that it ends up as part of the African diaspora, I think it, it, it nicely, it, it parallels nicely some of the things I'm trying to do in the book. It does, and it, what's really interesting about both of those texts is that, or the song and the play is that they resonate in different ways with the different periods that you talk about, and each one of them kind of addresses some of the issues in those moments, but that also move and change. So I, I found that really fascinating. Um, so, okay, so the final two chapters about black and feminist politics in the context of revolution, and they're really about illusion and disillusion. And in fact, you say in the conclusion that disillusionment is one of the central motifs in your story. So why is that, why is that so important to bring out as part of the story? And um, the, I'm really interested in your decision to end on that, on that note. I, it's a great question. And um, it's, 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 I think it's got a couple different answers. I think one is, um, one comes actually out of a position of uh, maybe weakness, <laughs> for lack of a better word, that I was worried that the book uh, would be billed as just kind of a hagiography of, of the left, you know, that this is simply, um, here's, you know, here's the, the triumph of the left, basically falling into a kind of glorification of, of what I was trying to be more critical about. Um, that, that, I think, was the original impetus. But then, as I started to think more about it and read more widely, people like Slavo Žižek um, and to read, read uh, Frederick Jameson and others and, and, and think about the left, many lefts, many, much of left-wing activity as being a project of failure rather than success and putting a kind of more negative spin on it uh, rather than ask the question, what is accomplished? Uh, asking the question, what what is what has failed, um, and that to me became much more stimulating um, from an academic perspective. Um, but I think it's also important to think about history advancing by failure, 
Um, and that, that's not often how we write history. <laughs> history is about celebration often. It's about uh, the power of individuals who overcome their circumstances and, and, and do something significant. Um, but I think so much of what is the left uh, in the United States and elsewhere is ephemeral. Um, and and it's ephemeral because it it, uh, it it changes and has to adapt. But also, there's a lot of failure in that in in, in those movements. Um, so I was struck by how many of the people I wrote about walked away from Cuba with a bad taste in their mouth because they wrote about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to make sure to make that part of the story. Uh, Margaret Randall, I think, is uh, someone who who illustrates this perfectly someone who lived i think 10 or 11 years in cuba was a was a feminist self-avowed third world feminist dedicated to the cuban cause but yet could not stomach the hypocrisy that she found in cuba uh with respect to how women were treated um sex tourism uh with respect to what people could and couldn't say it's very hard to be a champion of uh, even uh, something like uh, socialism or even democratic socialism, uh, and and have to adhere to the censorship rules of Cuba. She walked away from uh, that embittered. I think she just this is based on her her writing alone that I'm I'm gleaning this. But I think she's someone who was certainly inspired, like so many, by Cuba and by Cubans, and so much so that she lived there for quite some time. But yet. It she left feeling unsatisfied um, ultimately, and so many people Harold Cruz, Robert F. Williams. The list goes on of people who said, "Wow, Cuba looks so good on paper. It looks so good on TV." Um, but here's what living there really meant. I, one of the interesting things that isn't in the book, but that was part of my uh, own sort of personal journey in, into Cuba, was I met. Uh, William Brent, who was a, a former Black Panther who had hijacked an airplane in 1967 and went to Cuba, he was put in Cuban prison for two years. Cuba had the had the um, sort of the policy of any militant from the United States had to be properly processed, and you know we weren't they, they weren't just going to take <laughs> take someone's word for it, that they were a, a proper dissident, that they were, Cubans were worried about the CIA infiltrating. Uh, so Bill spent two years in prison. He cut cane, cut sugar cane for the harvest. Uh, but then he made his life in, in Cuba. Uh, and he lived there until uh, 2006 when he passed away. Well, actually, uh, while I was there doing research, I would visit him. I would talk to him about his time as a Black Panther in California, but also his time in Cuba. And what he told me, essentially, was that what he came to realize is that neither nation could fully prov- could, f- could fulfill the, pr- the promises. Uh, that there was just as much um, hypocrisy in Cuba, or, or I should say maybe disconnect between the way life is in Cuba and what the government is saying, as there is in the United States, uh, that the nation was, 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 uh, was limited. Um, he did not leave Cuba, though. He could not leave Cuba. Uh, and he, you know, as I mentioned, he passed, passed away there. But hearing him talk about the 60s, his time uh, as a Black Panther, hearing about the, 
the feuds that happened on the left, but also his time in Cuba and what Cuba meant to him, um, and as well as the failures of Cuba for him as as a as a stall as a as a guy on the left, uh, stuck with me. So I don't write about him, but definitely my time talking with him while I was doing research there uh, really comes into that conclusion, I think, where I think about disillusionment uh, as a political force, uh, as the will to do more, right? I think disillusionment can be quite productive, actually. It forces us to want to do more. How come, why are we disillusioned? We're forced to answer that question. What, what can we do to, to not become disillusioned? Which I think brings us to a better place, you know, whether in a movement or as a people. Yeah, I, I think that that's really thoughtful. And actually, I think that that's an appropriately complicated way to end this conversation about a complicated book. So um, we've taken up lots of your time. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too. I thank you for letting me be a part of uh, your project. It's a great one. 